Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. This is Brad King. I'm the host of the Downtown Rider Jam podcast. And today we have Celestine Bloomfield on. She is part of a group of storytellers that we've been talking to over the last few weeks. We recorded this um, a couple weeks ago. Um, and it's, she's a fascinating person. It's a great, um, a really good interview and a really interesting way in which she's approached storytelling and the ways in which she's used it throughout her life. She is not like anyone else that we have interviewed here on the show. So that's important. Good. Get that out of the way. Now, the election. It is uh, three weeks later, and I am still upset by what happened, probably for different reasons um, than other folks, but still upset. So here's the thing. We've been recording interviews, and we have several really good ones coming up, and we're beginning to think about the world that we live in now, and the world that we're about to inhabit, and the ways in which we begin to approach our art, and the ways in which we begin to approach our writing. So for me, I don't feel like I can write anymore for fun. I feel like what I have to do now has to be purposeful and directed, and particularly directed at, um, I mean, I'm Appalachian. I'm finishing up a book on um, the people that everybody's talking about right now. My family settled the what the New York Times called the hardest place to live in America. Um, we are that white group of people who, by and large, voted for Donald Trump, and there's this really interesting thing that I have to think about now. And so I've been talking to every writer and every artist about this. Like what, what is it that you do? How do you bring the personal into what you're doing without completely ruining the art? Right? Like I was talking to my writing partner earlier today and it's, it's, we wrote a book on video games and it's a little bit like people making um, games that have a purpose. Well, that's great, but people play games to have fun. Right. So if that's not what's happening, it is really difficult to get people to continue to play. And it's the same thing with writing. As I begin to think about what are the ways in which I can go tell stories about um, people like me, Appalachians, white Appalachians, like this seems to be a group of people that, um, and historically I could tell you all about like why it is. In fact, the whole book is about why they have developed the way that they've developed um, in a way that is not, I hope, simplistic in a way that both um, explains why the world is the way it is today without excusing some of the things that can't be excused, right? Like you can't exclude, you can't excuse racism. You can't excuse misogyny. You can't um, excuse homophobia. You can't excuse all of those things. And yet you can also begin to have art and to begin to tell stories that 
bring an understanding and an empathy to um, who we are, right? And if you're not doing that, then you have to ask yourself, like, what's the reason that you're doing any of these things, right? Like, writing just for fun. Like, I'm not afforded the ability to write just for fun anymore. Like, that's not the world that we live in, and that's not the place where I'm at. And so a lot of the discussions that I'm going to have with writers over the next... I don't know how fucking long until I'm done having this discussion. It's exactly that, right? Like, what is it? Like, how how do we make personal our writing? How do we bring the politics of the world into our writing? Like, how do we tell our stories in meaningful ways? Whether it's someone like Celestine, who's a storyteller, um, someone like me, who's a writer, the other folks I work with at the Geeky Press who do fiction and nonfiction and theater and poetry. Um, it seems like we're in a place when all of these things are, are weaponized and have to be weaponized. Like we can't just sit back um, and not tell important and hard stories. Like the fucking band-aid's been ripped off. Like it's time to tell the hard stories. So with that said, it's actually an accidental segue. The Geeky Press is working on a book called Dear America, which is personal reflections and stories about race. And we have a call for submissions right now. So if you're interested in that, you should go to thegeekypress.com and check us out under books. You will find that. We also have a, a reading series that now is going on monthly in Indianapolis called Scripted. It's a theater reading series that takes place at New Day Craft. We also have a literary magazine Who's your lit? And we are taking submissions for that as well. You can find that on thegeekypress.com. So that's enough of what we got going on. Now I'm going to turn it over to Celestine Bloomfield. And she and I had a lovely conversation about storytelling and writing. Enjoy. So we were just talking. So when I first moved to Indiana, I saw this storytelling arts of Indiana, right? Indiana. Indiana. Um, I had no idea what it is. You're a, you're a member. You're part of that? Or you I were? I remember. Um, as much as I can say I remember. Um, it's fantastic. It's one of the longest running storytelling associations in the country. I started toiling stories, uh, officially I say, 1977, I moved to Indianapolis from Gary, Indiana. I was ripped from my job, my very first teaching job, and somehow ended up at the State Department here. And my um, boss told me, she saw, gave me this magazine article, and it had the National Storytelling Association. It was probably the second meeting they ever had. And I actually flew down in my three-piece black suit to Jonesboro, to Johnson City, mm-hmm. and d- drove over to Jonesboro, and the very it was probably the second national festival they'd ever had, because I had been telling stories and doing workshops with teachers, trying to get them to tell stories and incorporate it into the classroom. And this is what you did in Gary, yes? You were. A- I was an elementary library media specialist. Okay. People say librarian. Right. I've always been a media specialist. Yeah. yeah. I 
graduate degree as certified media specialist. Uh-huh. So I wouldn't let anybody call me anything different because I love the technology. Is it like what library sciences is today? Is that what media specialist is? Kind of that same right. thing, like not if just books. If you can books, find a ev- librarian in an elementary school or a high school nowadays, they think they're sort of extinct. Yeah. You know, but they are very much needed. Uh-huh. So that was what your college was? That was my graduate degree. Okay. My undergraduate degree is in theater. So where did you grow Where were you born? I'm born in Gary, Indiana. I'm a I'm a native Hoosier. So you've been here. Born and bred in Indiana. and um, Brothers and sisters? I have two younger brothers. Uh-huh. I'm the eldest. Uh-huh. And um, I went to school, graduate, undergraduate school in Grinnell, Iowa, and Grinnell College. Uh-huh. So my undergraduate degree was... Was that a theater, small school? A very small school. Yeah. My high school was bigger than my college. Really? Well, yeah, if you were up in Gary, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was a very good liberal arts yeah. school. It's a fantastic place to go. I recommend it. And it, did you go there for theater, or did you I, find theater when you got there? My father loved. No, I was I was into theater when I was in high school. Uh huh. And I graduated from the Wallace High School in Gary, Indiana, class of 1970, first class I ever had African American students that graduated. Really? Okay, so, my long storied history, you know, believing buying, you know, buying. The Kool-Aid that, you know, you should have an integrated society, you should sure. have a diverse society. Sure. You know, not just mouthing it, but actually believing it and be a part of it, mm-hmm. which I later found out was a lie. But that's another <laughs> story. At any rate, um, I ended up at Grinnell We're going to be College. friends. <laughs> I ended up at Grinnell College because my father was an IU nut. He had a friend whose daughter had gone to IU. He wanted me to go to IU. Mm-hmm. But somehow I went to this, um, some college counselors came. And they really, when they are recruiting black students, they send a black counselor. Sure. They really don't want to talk to you. So I sure. happened to show up. And they told me all these things about Grinnell. It sounded really good. You know, I was interested. But she clearly was not trying to speak to me and basically ignored me. And of that group, I was probably the only one who actually applied to Grinnell College and got accepted. And I ended up with a four-year scholarship there. And if you kept your grades up, your scholarship was renewed. And I met people from all over the world, all walks of life, and I majored in theater, especially after they dropped all the requirements, and you could go straight into your major course. <laughs> so you just started, you went. That's what I did. But you, so you did that in high school? I did. I Were you creative? All, Is that like... You know, as creative as you can be when you had to catch the bus home after school, yeah. you know, in the dark, and people calling you out your name yeah. as you're riding the bus back to your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but yeah, I was in theater when I was in high school. So, and I was always into theater and into literature when I was mm-hmm. in high school. So, uh, I would, when I went to Grinnell, those are the classes I gravitated towards. Yeah. I tried to take a math class my senior year yeah. after I had reti- re- finished up all my requirements, and it was just honest to God, yeah. too much work. You know, I, I love math. I, I liked math. I took one math class, in, or I took a science class in college called Physics and Society because it had one equation. And I thought, yep, I can handle that. Everything else needs to be literature. <laughs> so you graduate. So what was your experience at college like? Like, were you, like, really involved in the theater and I really? I loved Grinnell. Uh, my senior project was a play that I had written, putting together sort of the history of theater. And I had forgotten a lot of things from college until I ran into some classmates, you know, who were, um, I think Butch was a year after me. But they were, and they started telling stories about how I handled rehearsals or mm-hmm. if you were late or what you did. And you had such a small number of African American students on campus. Basically, everybody on campus was in the show. Yeah. Okay? So it was so, a play that was written. It was an African American right. play. I mean, right. it was a play that was designed. Mm-hmm. But it took parts like, um, 
parts of Ed Bullen's play. Mm -hmm. We just sort of did a history of theater, mm -hmm. and that was my senior project. Interesting. And um, but you know, I took a, a jewelry class, which I wish I had done that earlier. That uh -huh. was wonderful. But I did theater arts. You know, I did the set design, I did uh, sound production, yeah. I did audio production. She learned the whole thing. Everything, and I loved it all. And my father, whenever I go home, would say drama. Drama, what you gonna do with drama? Yeah. You know, so yeah. anyway. My dad said the same thing about writing. Uh huh. He's like, you should, he, you should get a teaching degree so you have something to fall back mm -hmm. on. I'm sure that was a neighborhood you heard. No, I never, <laughs> yeah. I, oh, you gotta be a teacher. No, no, I never intended to do that. Me so neither. I, yeah, I yeah. got into it by accident. <laughs> just by accident. And then like years go by and you sort of look around and wonder well, how. I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. Actually, I went to graduate school at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland and I went to do, um, it wasn't even called computer science then, right. but I took a computer science class, those pioneering classes, this is back in 74, yeah. 75, yeah. and I couldn't stay awake in the class, <laughs> honest to God, I just couldn't do it, you know, and my professor, Tevko Sarasevich, I'll never forget that name, <laughs> um, he was good, but I couldn't stay awake, and so I looked and I saw of the courses it said certified media specialist. And I looked at all the courses. It was children's literature. It was audiovisual production. The things that I was It was into. speaking to you. Mm -hmm. So I, I switched. And I had people like Arlene Moselle who wrote The Funny Little Woman. She was one of my professors. I had people from the Cleveland Public Library who were part, who were teaching. And it was just wonderful. So that's what, and I, that was my calling. Yeah. So how, how long after college to graduate school? Straight after. So you went. After. You said I didn't intend to go to graduate school. Yeah. I was tired of school. But I hear this I a lot. then I was sitting around campus, you know, working at the preschool. Right. You know, little blonde-haired, blue-eyed children who would then go home and tell their parents that I was working at the preschool. And they'd come back the next day, and I'd be pushing them in the swing, and they go, you're black. And i go, you're white. <laughs> you're black, but you're white. You know, it's this little stupid thing, because you know that... Racism is something that is taught. It is yeah. nothing that's normal, you know. Yeah. So, at, but I was sitting there being bored, and I saw this bright orange brochure in the newly opened Career Services Office. Uh -huh. And it's, it was for Case Western Reserve University. And the beauty of the program was, it was I had already missed a deadline to apply. I had taken the, you know, GRE. Yeah. But I was even like, though you even though you didn't think you were going to go to right, graduate I, I school, go, but you took the GRE. I always, just in case, you know. so I went. I on. feel like mom and dad may have had something to do with that. No, because no? you know, I was the first one in my family to have gone to college. My dad was a bricklayer. My mother was a cook. But they didn't teach you like just in case, take the GRE just in case, um, or you did that on your. Is that just a thing you I, sort of learned along the way? I was. I've always been a practical person, yeah. so you know, it just seemed the thing to do. You know. Um, everybody else was taking it, sure. so why not me? But And I had driven back from, uh, our choir was on the road, had driven back all night from Madison, Wisconsin, to actually drive back to be there really? in time to take that. Test. Back in the good old days when it was in paper and you had proctors. and Right, and the back window of our station wagon, the equipment had hit the back window and it was shattered. Oh, God. So we're driving through fog from, I think, like Eau Claire, Wisconsin, right. trying to get back to Grinnell, Iowa. So it was an experience. Yeah. Me and Diane Jones, I'll never forget, because we had to come back in time to take that yeah. um, exam. So you so you see the orange the I brochure? I see it, it says Case Western, and I, I applied. And foolishly, they accept me. Yeah. And I have no money, mind you. Sure. So I work for one class, and I pay for the other class. Uh -huh. 
So my father said to me one day, he said, how is it you find all these expensive schools? I said, just lucky, I guess. Right. <laughs> but uh, that's how I did it. And it was, um, I could do it in a year and a half. I did uh-huh. not have to write a thesis. And yeah. it, it just fit. And in every semester, I complained. And every semester, somebody in the uh, admissions office said, well, well Celeste, you know, how you like it? And I said, ah, I'll try another semester. Yeah. And then after the second semester, well, what about now? I said, well, i got to finish up. I've gone this far. I right. might as well finish it, you know. <laughs> and it was like one of the best things I ever did. So um, it was wonderful. And the thing about it, that was 75. Mm-hmm. There were no elementary library jobs for the most part in Ohio. It wasn't a required position, mm-hmm. but I went to the Gary Public Schools where I had an elementary media specialist. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I got my first job because my supervisor asked if I knew who my media specialist was. And I told her, Marguerite Carmen, and she was from Indianapolis, but she taught in the Gary Schools. And she let me break film back, you know, yeah. when they started the ESA programs where they had all the films in the buildings trying to get kids to you know doing different methods of teaching so i you know it was just a perfect fit i played in libraries all my life yeah you know from elementary school middle school used to get kicked out of the library in high school then she found out what i was talking about she put me to work you know so it's just been i talked the lady at grinnell college into letting me work she said oh no you must be trained and i started telling her what i knew and before i knew it i was working full time (laughs) you know so so you do so it's so i'm from appalachia i'm from like one of the poorest um areas in the in the country Mm -hmm. and it's a lot of first generation like Mm -hmm. when i got out i went back and taught in the area Mm -hmm. and i always anytime my students the kids that come to ask me how things happen i'm like well you just gotta get in the door however you get in the door and once you're in you just tell them like well now i'm here Mm -hmm. um so you talked your way into stuff Mm -hmm. you were gonna do like Mm -hmm. you were there and you were gonna do what you were gonna do there's a reason for me to be there right so and i that's what i did you know so i so that's so you start teaching them like after case western I, i started actually i started working at the um cuyahoga county public library garfield branch okay in uh cleveland as a matter of fact, for my first couple of years of teaching, I would go back in the summer because, you know, teachers made no money. You know, my goal that was hasn't to make, changed. Yeah, my goal <laughs> was to make $11,000 yeah. with a graduate degree, and I did do that. You know, that's back in 75. So I would go back every summer and work um, the summer programs and at the Garfield branch. Yeah. And uh, we had people like Ezra Jack Keats would come, and he had written Pete's Chair, and he had had all this controversy because he had drawn a little african-american boy in his artwork and actually had to uh, he did a snowy day yeah and he had to fight to keep his artwork so he would come for his birthday party in july he really didn't was uncomfortable around kids but he was was the coolest thing (laughs) you know i would do clay projects with the kid but that was the best of both worlds right the public library and the school library the difference is in the school library your, your audience is always there in the public library, you gotta entice them in. You gotta yeah. bring them in and make them want to keep coming back. So you do a lot of programming. So I enjoyed doing that. But like I said, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. But yeah. I retired from my career as a school media specialist. Did you see the as you started putting together those programs? Because it was around that time that you started doing the storytelling, or at least right. Mm-hmm. No, seven, I thought it was 77. Yeah, 77. So it was a year or two later. I started working in the Gary schools and accidentally was ripped from my job because I was actually going to teach in my old elementary school, Daniel Hell Williams Elementary School. And um, they, it was a 
temporary position, but a permanent position opened at Carver Elementary School, the schools my cousins went to. So instead of the secretary typing a whole new contract, she just X'd out the name of one school and put in the name of the other one. So when they decided to rip people, my principal could not prove to them that she, my position was actually permanent. So I ended up being ripped. And I ended up at the State Department. So there used to be a gentleman in northern Indiana who my boss was angry with because anytime somebody wanted him to go out and tell stories, he would go out and do that, which really wasn't in the job description. So what do you mean he would tell stories, like go well, out and tell stories? Go out and talk to teachers and tell, talk to them about telling stories, and he would tell stories. You know, I, don't, I can't call it, recall his name now. I should remember, but I don't remember. But he went to go work on his doctorate. And after he left, people kept calling the State Department, wanting people to come to their school to give them workshops on storytelling. So I Why would they school. call the State Department for well, that? The Indiana Department of Public Instruction was our Department of Ed. Oh, okay. So there was a whole division that oversaw school libraries. You know, which in the uh, state department. In the state department. That's so you, weird. You were required, but you were required to have a school library media specialist. Sure. And by law, if you're in the secondary you have a secondary school, you should have an elementary, I mean, you should have a media specialist. Mm-hmm. And in school corporations, they have now have one media specialist for the entire district and think they have actually followed the rules. Yeah. When a media specialist actually provides a program. And people who have never grown up with a professional in their library sure. have no idea what they're missing out on. So... So the State Department would fill some of that role? They would come in yeah, like we, and, we go and supplement and... and do professional development. We'd go in and tell you. I could go look in a library now and tell you exactly what is not occurring in that media center. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that was my job as a consultant to go and consult with administrators about their library media programs. Um when they started cutting programs in education, they cut the art department, yeah. they cut home ec, yeah. they cut industrial arts, yeah. they cut the librarians, they cut the musicians, right. the, the music teachers, they cut the uh, PE teachers. Right. You know, a lot of places don't have that. Right. But I grew up with fantastic library media services, and that's something I always wanted to do. <laughs> so um, as the State Department's role was guiding those schools we not only monitored the federal funds they had mm-hmm. to see if you spent it correctly, but we had innovative programs that we would go out and look at, and maybe you could replicate that program in your district. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of things that they claim are new, they're not. Yeah. They've just been recycled yeah, yeah. with a different name, i.e. new math. Right. I'm sorry. Okay. So okay. you start, and it's, that's the job where you find yourself doing the storytelling stuff. Somehow I said to my boss, oh, I can do that. I don't know what made me say that. I don't you know. That seems like a theme. Well, see, in my elementary school, the, my predecessor had not processed the books with the covers on them. So you had all these bland-looking books on the shelf. And my game was to find a story in one of the books, share it with my kids, and then challenge them to find that story mm-hmm. in the collection just to get them to the books. Right. So that's how I knew. And if you had a class with, like, you had seven classes in a day, and it was a holiday story. If you read the pumpkin giant to every single class, by the end of the day, you know that story. Right. And now the next day, another set of kids are coming in. So what you're doing is you're just showing them the pictures and basically telling the story. Yeah. So I've learned stories quickly. Um, then I found out about the National Storytelling Association, and I went to them. I went to that. I, I met Jackie Torrance so the first time she ever told. I saw Augusta Baker the last time she was ever at a... Um, NAPS, which used to be called the National Association for the Perpetuation and Preservation of Storytelling. So now it's the National Storytelling Association. So what happened when you go to that conference? Like, what what is it like? What is the 
Oh, my God. I flew in. <laughs> I changed out of my professional three-piece suit, which was a pantsuit, into jeans in the parking lot behind the tent. <laughs> you get this swatch on your jacket so they know you paid. And I just, I met Jackie Torrance. I followed her from session to session to session. I met Utah Phillips, uh, Marshall Dodge. I met all, um, Chuck Larkin, all the names, all the old names uh, that, you know, brought this storytelling back to its revival. And so I went there for many years until I got a job that wouldn't allow me to go and participate. Yeah. But you just listen to teller after teller after. You don't want to sleep because you might miss something. And now a lot of those tellers um, have been to Indiana. We used to have a storytelling festival. Yeah. And so a lot of them oh, have really? been here. Oh, yeah. We used to have a, um, oh, gosh, I wish I had brought my figures. But we had a storytelling festival until the downturn in economics and arts funding here yeah. in the city of Indianapolis. And we started out, uh, we, we've done it at Connor Prairie. We did it at the park there uh, in Broad Ripple, north of, uh, by the Art Center. Yep. And uh, downtown in Military Park where our last sites. Uh-huh. So. And are they. Are they like folk stories? Are they original stories? Like, are they just whatever? They're folk stories. They're uh, fairy tales. They're original tales. They're life stories. Mm-hmm. Um, the funniest stories you ever want to hear is Donald Davis talking about the first time they saw a nun, and he's talking about growing up in North Carolina. And it's <laughs> hilarious stories. But that's the beauty of it. Everybody's got a story to tell. Sure. And I tell people. People want to be upset about some of the stories that are told, but that's their story to tell. Sure. And you get to tell it from your perspective. Right. So I have three I have two brothers. All three of us could have been at the same event at the very same time, but we each have a different perspective. Right. Like I would tell stories, I would embellish them sometimes. And my mother would be sitting in the audience just shaking her head like that's not how it happened. Right. That's not how it happened. Right. I said, but I have You're missing liberty. the point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I got pe- uh and so you go to this con like how does it develop for you? Like, when do you say, okay, I want to start? Because well, that's really that. stories already. Yeah. From the so, theater uh, and just from your life. Well, I just, mean, like no, the theater training. Folk and tales. I did uh, Hamas Pudding Broke Up the Preaching, you mm-hmm. know, my version of it. Like, when when did you start doing that? Or was uh, that part of the that was media specialist? That part of my elementary school. Yeah. Part of being the media specialist. Yeah. Um, so when I, and so I had set numbers of stories that I told when I did workshops. And my workshop was called Ralph Ruby Seymour. The Big Bad Wolf, the truth of how to tell stories, you yeah. know. And my signature tale is the real story of the Three Little Pigs, which started out as a film strip. I made a film strip when I was in grad school. And I made my own version of the Three Little Pigs, you know, um, and made it into a little film strip. I had little toy cars, had little puppets, I had pigs I had made, you know. And that's how I started. And I started telling that story. So I had... I was trying to grow as a storyteller, and my boss knew that and saw that, and she sent me to my very first conference. Yeah. So, well, storytelling festivals, they have conferences in addition to the storytelling yeah. festival. Um, so I told stories before, and a lot of the stories that people were telling were stories that I was telling, mm-hmm. you know, so... Um, Draw, so drawing from those same kinds of... Right, from the same... Fairy tales and those tales. same folk mm-hmm. tales and things like that. And then it was Catherine um, Wyndham, who had, who really made it a genre to tell family stories and realistic stories. She told stories from her life growing up, 
And then Donald Davis did that, and Sid Lieberman did that. So, you know, everybody's got a story to tell. Sure. So you, so this is 77? 77. 77. And you come back from that festival, and do you start saying, do you, like, did you present at that festival, or were you just there no, watching? I was just a participant. Was so just when watching. did you decide, uh, okay, I want to start doing this? Well, I didn't. <laughs> People kept calling the State Department. I would do these wonderful workshops for teachers for industrial development. Then they wanted me to come and tell stories at PTA meetings and different other functions. And so I would take time off of work and go do those. So it found you. Right. So, and I thought, well, if I charge them, they'll stop asking me. Uh And that didn't happen. So then I got in trouble because I worked for the State Department and it wasn't legal for me to go, which I didn't know. I thought because I took vacation days that it was all right. But so that wasn't true. So I stopped it for a long time. And then I went into an elementary school, and I had more free time, and I could do it again. Yeah. And then I also had a captive audience because I got a chance to work on a lot of different material. Right. So I like to do scary stories. I would get these complaints. You know, I hadn't even told a story that day, and a parent would call, well, so-and-so is having nightmares, and it's because of those stories she's telling in the library. I said, I didn't tell any stories. I'm innocent. I don't know what happened, but it wasn't me. So... Um, now everybody, you have to, I've got stories I'm doing in Fishers on the 23rd, Bob Sander and I are doing, uh, some scary stories, but they can't be too scary. Right. They want you to tell scary stories, but not too scary. Sure. So I have to find that balance. Figure out a way to kind of be scary. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and so is that like, is that, how long did you do that? When did you leave the state department? Like, did you work at the state department? I left the state department? state department in 84 and I went to work for the Indianapolis public schools as a library administrator at the Calp Teachers Library. I think they don't have that job anymore. Yeah. Um, would you, would, is that, were you, then did you go back to telling stories or did you I wait to? I But I, I mean like doing workshops and things like that where you yes. were getting, like that was when you, like you didn't have the rules of the state department right. anymore and you right. could sort of begin to do that. But, so what does a workshop look like? Like when you run a, like a professional development mm-hmm. storytelling workshop for adults. Well, first of all, I need to find out who the adults are. Uh-huh. I need to know who my audience is and what kind of experience they have. Because people don't think they tell stories, especially if you're in the classroom. I have a friend who is a fifth grade teacher, and he loves history. And anytime he teaches anything about the Revolutionary War, it's a story. Yeah. Okay. So um, you have people who have science stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I love to tell kids stories about growing up. I love pioneer stories. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, they think you're a pioneer age, but, you know, <laughs> right. really. But storytelling is in so many facets of our lives. You know, the Storytelling Arts does a, the story of your business workshop. So people, if you tell a good story, um, you do a better job. So people know who you are. Right. They know your brand. But I had kids telling stories. See, I believe I'm working for literacy. So you have, if you teach... Reading, writing, and storytelling are those three components for me of uh, literacy. Yeah. And I want, you might not like to read as much. Sure. You might not like to write as much, but you're going to do one of those things better than the other. Right. So they all work hand in hand. And so that was basically what my workshop was about and how, as an in- instructor, you could incorporate storytelling yeah. into your classroom. So my, before I did all this writing stuff, my undergraduate degree was in education and I, my specialty was kids that had reading problems. Mm-hmm. So when I taught middle school, I taught kids that were failing out of school. Not because they were dumb, but just because they had whatever reading issue they had. Mm-hmm. And so we would do things like 
We'd read a book, and I could. We actually read all seven books in the first semester, and I didn't know what to do with this. I'm like, it's not hard to get them to read, because what we did then, we would at the end we would do a graphic novel, and they would pick a character, and they do as a team. Uh, they could also write a film, and we had the old VCR, so like you just had to hit play and stop. Like there was no like shooting with a camera. Like I'm running around outside with this big ass VCR thing. Um, they could do uh, a play. So, and again, they could reinterpret or they could take a character and do something with that um, to get them to understand, right? That, like, the story is manifests mm-hmm. in all the ways that it does and find the way that you like. And reading a graphic novels no different than reading a book. I mean, it's different, but who cares? Well, you know, my thing is, okay, <laughs> was this book good? You know, do you want to make one of your own? Right. You know, it's something piggybacks off. Like, I love Andrew Luck, and I love Andrew Luck mostly because he has this book club, and one of the first books he told the kids to read was Maniac McGee, and I <laughs> love Maniac McGee. And we would do it. What is Maniac? So I don't know what Jerry that is. Jerry Spinelli is the author of this <laughs> children's book called Maniac McGee. Yeah. And I read the prologue, and I take the book and illegally copy, make copies for everybody to read. And if you have enough money, you have copies for everybody. Right. But each group reads a certain part yep. of the book. I read the prologue, and then they have to read it and interpret it, and they have to come back and yeah. tell us what they read. Right. They can report back to us that section any way they want right. to. And it's, it's amazing like, when you do things like mm-hmm. that, isn't it? And then the book is never in the library anymore. Right. And so I love Andrew Luck because one of his books was Maniac McGee, which yeah. was his book club. You know, um, this has been some of the evolution of me thinking about, and it's been it's weird because I mean I'm sort of a snobby writer, so like I've always literature is a thing, and um, but my whole experience as a teacher was exactly the opposite. When I had 13 year old kids that were struggling, I was like. All right, let's figure out how you like stories and figure out how you can interpret this in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but see, I'm old enough before there was a graphic novel and people turned their noses up at comic yeah, books, you right. know. And my thing, I grew up with my mother. They saying, did in my generation too. <laughs> Whatever you want to read. Yeah. And I tell you, if you, first you must foster the love of reading right. before you get them to read other right. things. So it becomes a habit. And it's the same with storytelling. I mean, what you said that. Everybody tells a story. I can't tell you how many times I've told people that. And, like, I'll do these interviews, and they'll, people will get done and go, I don't really feel like I gave you anything. I'm like, you just told me stories for 50 <laughs> minutes. Like, you may not enjoy them anymore because they're your life and you've lived them, but to other people, they are hearing things that they've and perspectives that they don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but even as a journalist, when I was a journalist interviewing people, they always they always tell you, like, oh, my life's not that interesting. But that person... Like, they always think somebody else's story is really interesting and until you can get them to sort of understand it. And that's the beauty of a story. One good story leads to another. Sure. You know, most of the time, somebody's had the same similar experience. Right. And they can bring that up. Too often, we're busy pointing out our differences right. instead of trying to find out our common ground. Right. And people don't work at that. And you have to work at it. You have to smile at people when you see them. You have to speak to sure. people. You have to say it. I, I, my mother used to get so upset because she said, you talk to everybody. <laughs> I said, I can't help it. You know, I just can't help right. it. Right. And, and I do. Right. Because I'm trying to find out. You know, I want to know, how did you meet your husband? You know, uh, where are you from? Right. You know, and you might start be standing there at the corner and just have a conversation waiting for the light to change going across right. Washington Street. So I talked to everybody. And how many times have you heard in your life that a story changed somebody's life? Mm-hmm. It is. My mom and dad uh, are 
you know, they're small town hillbillies, but they traveled the country. Like, they would just get in cars, and they would just go. They square dance, so they would go all over the place. And my mom, for years, had these note cards of everybody she'd meet, and she'd get their addresses, and she'd be right, and she would know their wedding date and her kid. Like, it'd be the waitress in a diner that they met somewhere, and it that fostered the, like, we made fun of her when I was young. And then I sort of realized, like, oh, that's actually what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Like, the stories and the things that you learn are how you understand the world. And the fewer stories you know, the less you understand about the world. Right. My brother's a truck driver, you know, before he, you know, he's in a wheelchair now. and But he, the stories he would tell, the adventures he would have, just, you know, driving a truck. And at one point he was an instructor. And so he was taking people all over the country, teaching them how to drive down um, yeah, Highway 1, yeah. you know, oh. <laughs> having the brakes burn out. Right. Or let him sit and tell you the story about the time his truck went over the uh, hill in the mountains of uh, Pennsylvania. And it's just hilarious. Right. And that's what we did. Now. Now it's hilarious. Now, yeah, now. <laughs> you know, him waking up and some Amish guy, I guess, with his full beard and yeah. hat on and looking down at him saying, son, you're going to be all right. And him looking up saying, he thought he said he thought he had died. It was an accident. <laughs> but I mean. Everybody's got one of those right. stories. Right. Well, and it's, you know, Twain, the paraphrasing is always like, you can't travel and, and be ignorant. And, mm-hmm. and that's sort of what the story thing is, I think. You can't, you can't hear other people's stories unless you are actively trying to not see how they're, mm-hmm. what the Venn diagram, everything's not mm-hmm. the same. Mm-hmm. But there's enough that you can go, okay, mm-hmm. I can start here and sort of work my way into that. Um, and it is, it's part of the reason that I started talking to people outside of just writers because mm-hmm. the ways in which people engage. So are your stories interactive or are you just getting the audience enraptured? It depends on what the story is. Um, there's some stories like I've written the authors or called the authors and gotten permission to tell their story because I love words. You know, if I'm sitting talking to you, um, I'll if you say something that I think is funny or something I want to remember, I'll write that down yeah. and I might show up in another story. She um, hasn't written anything down so far. But I found out once, uh, sometimes you want to record yourself telling a story yeah. so you can duplicate that. No storytelling is ever the same. Sure. The audience is different. So yeah. your telling is going to be different because they're going to laugh. I'll never forget. I told stories down at the canal once. And it was not a story I intended to tell. But I had read the kernel of this story, and something, the person, I think it was Lou Ann Holman had said something earlier that reminded me of that story. And even though it wasn't perfect and it wasn't perfected, and I, and I ended up telling that story. And one of the lines I said was, they went past the Methodist church and went into the Baptist church, and it got the biggest laugh. And I don't know why. And it was a ghost story, you know, but I, I remember that line. So, um, so it becomes interactive depending on who the audience yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, But I don't, there's something, depending on the age, too, because with younger kids, you try to do more participatory yeah. stories because their attention span is just so short. Right. But for the most part, you do enough sound effects and your voice changes. Yeah. And I have really not had a problem keeping the audience's attention. Yeah. But I'm always trying to find new material and asking uh, authors if I could do that work. Like I asked um, Eric Kimmel if I could do two of his stories. And I think... Uh, his agent, because I called the publisher, said, okay, go for it, you know. Yeah. I, thought, I think they think I can't tell this story. Right. You know? 
but um, I love Eric Kimmel's work. I love Isaac Singer's work. Um, my last name is Bloomfield, so I've been invited to the Hillel for decades, even though I'm not Jewish. And so there are certain <laughs> segments of the population that really intrigue me. So I'm always trying to find out about somebody else's culture. Yeah. That's just how you know we were raised. Yeah. But their stories I really like to tell. Uh, Isaac Singer has a story called The Mixed Up Feet and the Silly Bright Room. And I tell it and I changed it because I couldn't pronounce the names. <laughs> so my story starts off as sitting uh, Hamlet, North Carolina. Uh, my father's from Rockingham, North Carolina. Hamlet's right up, you know, a couple yeah. of miles away. And the story is uh, Lula Bell and Lily Bell and Cora Bell. You know, I just changed the names yeah, yeah. to suit my situation. And it's Aunt Lee's story by the time my story is over and done with. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I needed permission. I started telling stories before people worried about copyright. You want to give the actual author and the creator their due and get permission. Um, one of our storytellers, I can't call her name right now, uh, says she never starts a story, especially if it's a literary tale, Carol Birch, unless she has a permission of the author to do it. Yeah. So you don't want to put that effort into it. Um, Jay California Cooper was in town once, and I had read all of her works, and I asked her at the Walker Theater one evening if I could tell one of her stories and the story is a hundred dollars or nothing and she said you can tell it she said, you can't do anything else to it you can tell it you can't write it down you can't record it but yes you can tell it and uh, she's gone on the glory now but I'll never forget that and I don't do that story very often but when I do you know I make sure that I tell people where it is yeah who wrote it and that's what you want you're giving credit mm -hmm. for the work and then uh, sometimes I don't tell to the end but I always try and tell who I got that story sure, from. Sure, sure. Uh, another author, Judith Gorick, um, was in Pennsylvania, and I called her up and talked to her on the phone. And I love to tell her, um, she's got a book called 12 Babysitting Tales of Terror, and I tell one of her stories called Double Pay. And the thing about it is I can put myself in the story, so you th you swear it happened to me. Right. Okay, so um, that that's... but. Not every story affects you that way. Sure. If somebody wanted me to do Little Orphan Annie or something when the frost is on the pumpkin, I said, you know, I did Little Orphan Annie when I was in elementary school. Yeah. You know, I probably could dredge that out of my memory banks, but that's not my story. Right. So and you know when it's not your story. How do you know? Um, you don't You don't feel it. Yeah. You know, I can't force it. Somebody wanted me to do uh, Harriet Tubman's story. That's not my material. Yeah. You know, there are some tellers who do wonderful renditions of Harriet Tubman. Yeah. I'm not the one. What do you? What's what's yours? Like what? Like what? What? What character? Like when you see a story, what are the characteristics that you're like? Yep, got that. That's me. I get it. Um, Obviously, little. I like scary. Scary. Stories. We got scary. Yeah. <laughs> I like stories that I can see. Like uh, Judith Gorick has a story called "Smelly Sneakers," <laughs> and it reminded me of the time that my youngest brother was playing basketball and his shoes stank so badly. And my mother made him sit him on the front porch. So you have some connection, I have to, some connection to, the story. to an actual event. Like, it really is your story right. because it is something that happened in your life. Like, uh, Black Bubblegum was a story that I tell. And I don't know who the original um, author of Black Bubblegum is. But some tellers have been down in Kentucky. They came through Indiana to our festival. They told me that story. I started telling that story. So you'll be yeah. at festivals and you'll hear something and that'll trigger something. Trigger and then you're like, oh, okay. I'm going to take, so this is, so it's interesting because 
right? Like in comedy, that's a thing that happens, right? Like people take jokes and they will turn them into their own and there's an art form to that. But if you're not very good at it, you're not a very good comic. You're right. So does that happen in the storytelling world? Like are there story, you don't have to name names, but are there storytellers that you see that you're like, oh, this is just, they're just sort of pumping out. Well, not necessarily that. You know, you don't like every storyteller. Yeah. You know, that's just not your style, <laughs> you know. So, and that's okay. Um, because there's an audience for every teller, basically. But I don't have to sit there and subject my... My kids used to... My elementary students, we would have guest readers in. And I'd have somebody read. And they were just dry and boring. And I could see the kids looking at me like, you're not going to stop this? Right. You know? And But they were polite. And they would listen. Yeah. But if I had to pay for that, I don't want to spend good money on that. I... I have to um, measure my time. I don't want to use waste my time. Sure. So, you know, but so, you sit there long enough, think, oh, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. Yeah. But you don't. The, you don't necessarily like every teller, yeah. or every story, and that's okay. Yeah. So now you know what you don't like. So you it's not. But it's not. Hand. It's not competitive in the way that the 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 comedy scene is really competitive, mm-hmm. and they, it, it's like there are people that. Other comics say, yeah, they're really good, and others that they say they can tell a joke and, and the general audience isn't going to know, but they're not as good at telling as somebody else. Well, it's just like if you hired, if I hired somebody to come to my school and do a program, I do not hire people I have not seen. Uh-huh. So you know what fit you're going to make. Yeah. You've got to make sure you, you have the best. It's like picking a book. Everybody's not going to like the same book. Sure. You know, and I give you permission to put that book down. And get a different one. So, what are the story? Like, what are the characteristics of good storytellers for you? Like, what what do you look and go? Oh, yeah, I like. Well, it's just me personally. Yeah. You know, um, like I said, I follow Jackie Torrance from yeah. tent to tent to tent, and listen to her because she spoke to me. You know, as an African American woman, uh-huh. telling some of the same stories that I was telling, and the style, and she did great sound effects. Yeah. I loved her. Uh, by the same token, Bill Harley is hilarious. Donald Davis will have you bust in the gut. You know, it just depends. Sometimes it's the story. Sometimes it's the teller. Yeah. But the story is bigger than the teller. Yeah. That's well, and I guess maybe that's what I'm getting at is that there are... So, I don't know Chris Rock, but I've heard this story. So, he, if you've ever seen his comedy, he's has an affectation. When he goes into the clubs, he doesn't use any of that because he doesn't want the affectation to be the thing people are laughing at. He needs the joke to be funny, and then the affectation is the thing that puts the stamp on that so as you're telling stories like this is kind of i think what i'm hearing is that you want the this the storytellers that you like are the ones who the story is good and whatever they bring to that makes that story better as opposed to just somebody that because if you're good you've been in theater you know if you're good you can manipulate audiences Mm -hmm. to sort of oh i'm gonna tug on their string here and make them feel this way here this is a very smart yeah audiences are very smart you have to make a connection to the audience and that's it for me. Yeah. It's hard for me to practice. My story is not finished until I have a live audience yeah. so I know what they're going to respond to. And sometimes they respond to things you don't know they're going to laugh at. <laughs> I'm I do, sure. <laughs> I do the Three Little Pigs, and I had no idea. I was going, raw pig, raw pig. And you know, I didn't know I was even making that voice. And yeah. I, said, and I was thinking, to them, why are they laughing? That's not funny. But then when you look at a picture or have somebody take it, <laughs> then you realize what you did. Yeah. You remember to do that every time. So... I want to make sure I get to this last thing, but I, I want to. So, what, how do you, how do you practice? Like, as you're doing this, are you just in your house, like, doing it, or do you, at this point, I don't want to say right on stage, but at this point, do you kind of know how to work the story? Um, 
in you real time. Map, you map the story before you leave. Like, it took me a long time. We did ghost stories October 1st, and I'm notorious. We, were, You know, there'd be seven tellers, and we'd all be talking about, okay, what are they going to tell, what are they going to tell, and talk to each other so we don't tell the same story. Yeah. Or somebody in the very beginning that tell the story you intended to tell. You, you should have at least... If you got twenty minutes, you should have at least you know two hours worth of material right. that you can slide just in, in case. Just in case. <laughs> yeah. uh, the very first time we went, we had to tell everybody what stories we we're going to tell for ghost stories, and every single person had written in what they thought they were going to tell. And when we got there, we all told different stories. Yeah. It's like the setting was different, something yeah. different happened, sure. and we changed our stories. Uh, but you got to have enough material in order to be able to do that. Yeah. Well, um, I forgot how we started on this. So I was just asking about the process. So you sort of have plot points like, okay, these are the big. So I had to decide. I really wanted to tell Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblins. Uh And I knew that Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblins was totally inappropriate to tell for ghost stories. But they have some great goblins in that story. So, And I haven't told that story since I retired in 2012. So I was looking for an excuse. But... That Saturday morning, I said, oh, you know you can't tell that story. So I get on my computer, and I started typing a story that I think I'm going to tell based on a kernel of a story from somewhere else. And I told another author's material that I didn't have permission to tell, and I told my version of it. Yeah. You know, and I have to see the row houses that are in my neighborhood. Yeah. I have to see my friends. Yeah. I have to put my Halloween candy in the story. So, and that's the story I ended up telling. But that morning is when I actually sat down and mapped out how I thought I'd tell the story. Yeah. And a lot of times, my story is not written out. I did uh, Still Stories, Tales of the Region, and I really wished I'd had somebody take that. That was a commissioned piece. And in order for me to do that story again, I'd have to almost start over. I have my notes, yeah. but I have to, you have to have that emotion. Yeah. And the emotion is the part that drives the story for me. I have to connect to the audience, yeah. and I have to have that emotion. Do you think in terms of like, here's a point I have to get to, here's a point I have to get to, like, here's the point where they have to make the decision about would they go into Methodist or the Baptist church. And sort of what comes in between is you telling the story, but you sort of know where you're going in these major... Well, that's your story map. Yeah, you know, you that's what I mean. So you're putting that, that's mm-hmm. when you say you're plotting it out. That's you what you're... Mm-hmm. Um, do you write it down or is it up there in your head? I write it down. Yeah. In my old age, I start writing things. Yeah. There's some stories I never wrote down yeah. that I could tell in my sleep. And sometimes when you do shows... Uh, maybe you do three shows at a school, and you might tell. I always start off with the real story of the three little pigs if I have to, if I can, because that's my warm-up story. But sometimes I'm in the middle of the story, and I can't remember if I said that already because I've told it so many times, and I can tell it in my sleep. Yeah. And I don't want to be like that. Yeah. I want to be in the moment right. with the people. Right. So. Well, and that was, you know, I guess getting back to the sort of hacky thing, like that's the thing, right? Like, um I, you know, I'm from, like I said, I'm from Appalachia, so like I grew up around people that tell stories. Mm-hmm. Like that's just what they do. They sit on the porch and they will tell. And um, it, I, I didn't learn until later that the stories they were telling me were not necessarily the things that had happened to them. Right? Like it was the way that culture was passed down. It was the sort of the legacies of you know, where we're from and our people. Um, it's like they had added some yeast to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like it would happen to them. Uh, 30 years ago uh, and so I grew up thinking like oh yeah shit that, all this stuff happened to them and then I t- see this thing and I'm like what hang on uh-huh. and they're like oh no that's just that's <laughs> how you that's oral story that's mm-hmm. what happens uh-huh. um, and that's I find that fascinating so we're, we're running out of time but I, I so when you think about the kinds of stories that you like that are yours personally are they 
um, cultural? Are they African American history like that? In turn, or is it like, is it things like my brother's shoes? Like that's just my life, and so the things that happen in my life are the things that drive my story. Well, as I'm older, I've found that I do more personal connections to stories. Yeah. But it depends on the story. Because if I tell an Isaac Singer story, you don't think that I'm telling a Jewish folktale, yeah. a Yiddish folktale. Yeah. You think I'm telling something that happened down in North Carolina, yeah. you know, when my mom and dad grew up. Yeah. You know? But because it's the teller that changed the story. Yeah. You know, just as the stories were brought from Africa and told in our country, yeah. when you came to North Carolina and you were telling that story, instead of having a cassava, you might have had a sweet potato instead. Right. You know? <laughs> so... The, and it's the same thing with the stories that came from England that became the Jack Tales. You know, right. they changed because the scenery changed right. and the things around them changed. So, what is the legacy of that? So, like, I'm just thinking, like, so I'm writing a book on Appalachia. My family has settled lots of things and destroyed accidentally lots of stuff. And so, I find myself. So, this is sort of a question about me. I think um, I find myself thinking about. Appalachia and Appalachians and particularly in this season as they're now being talked about in ways that they are not normally they're talked about in this way right they're poor and they're dumb and so my book is not about that it is about sort of the sort of breadth and of Appalachian how it became the thing that it was it wasn't a foregone conclusion and so I think like when I'm telling stories like I used to just tell funny Appalachian stories without thinking about it and now I have to think very carefully and be like, okay, does this fit into the narrative that everybody's expecting? Or is this something that's my, that is actually fulfilling the need for the country to understand these people in a different way than they do? Like when you're telling stories, how much of that filters into you? Well, I think you have some social responsibility, and that's how I was raised. Yeah. But at the same time, I think, you know, we have such a burden, you know, as an African American. Yeah have a burden of the entire race on you. you sure. know, there's certain things you're not allowed to do, you shouldn't do, you need right. to uphold the race. That's right. how I was raised. Okay? Yeah. Um, that when I was bused to the suburbs, that you know you were the best and the brightest, sure. and this was the expectation yeah. that was held for you. Um, but at the same time, it depends on my purpose of the story. Yeah. A lot of times I just want to entertain. Right. Okay. There's some things, there's some old stories that have the words, that have words in that I'm not going to use. Yeah. Okay, that's not my, you yeah. know, that's my own personal preference. Yeah. And if you use it, I'm going to have to have a conversation with you later. Right. Okay. But <laughs> there are just some things I cannot yeah. do. So I think, though, that initially, stories were told to get people to behave a certain way. Yeah. And not realize that they were being taught. Right. Okay, that's where the stories came from. Sure. Whether it was taught the family history, yeah. how we came to this part of the right. country, how we invented, how we something special, how right. we had a trucking firm. You know, like right. our family wasn't always like this. You know, back in the day, we did blah blah blah. Right. And I, I heard all these stories. I heard the story of my grandfather who actually came to Indiana and re- laid railroad ties, and how he was verbally assaulted, and he he walked all the way back to Mississippi. I didn't make that up. But I incorporated it into a ghost story that I did later on. You know right. what I'm saying? Um, so every story, I think, serves a purpose. Yeah. But I want to entertain for the most part, and but I'm not willing to do anything to be an entertainer. Well, and that's the thing, right? Like, people don't, like, I hate, I don't know how much, I hate Jeff Foxworthy, who does You Might Be a Redneck If, right? And, like, people love it, and they laugh, and I just think, 
that's not it then it, it but is the beauty of that is that we know that's not true okay we, we it do happens, but that's sort of like poking fun itself yeah it as an Appalachian I get really nervous because I because then I see the narrative like the Trump craziness is going on right now and anytime there there's only two times they write about Appalachia when they're poor or when they're dumb like that's when you hear it. like why are these people voting well, see, for this guy that's not my perspective right okay. well it is, I'm just saying when you look in the media oh, okay. um, that is the well, it's just so, like looking in the media and seeing that all black people are yes, criminals yes you know, so if you had a drugs. comedian that said you were sort of pr- doing that stereotype, yes, to poke fun. Like, yeah, I know Jeff Foxworthy is not saying everybody's like that, but I think a lot of people are laughing because they think, well, yes, that's true. Well, I hope not. And so when I write, when I'm telling stories and stuff, like in the back of my head, which is probably the worst thing you can do as a writer is to think, like, what's the, how's the audience going to take this? Because I don't actually but know. But you won't know until you right. do it. And right, audience, <laughs> right. So. But so. it is just a thing that I think about these days that I didn't before in terms of my own writing. Well, I think everybody has issues. It depends on what your issues <laughs> yeah. are. Yeah. You know? And it's okay. Right. You know, it's okay that I accept my issues. I'm yeah. doing a spirit in place, and uh, one of my pieces on Alzheimer's, and, you know, I got people who, you know, I don't wear purple anymore. You know, when I see something on Alzheimer's, I change the channel. You know, and this is just my reaction to my experience with it. Everybody doesn't have that reaction. Right. You know, I have people who, who, with the march and who are, doing all these other things, but, you know, I have issues, and I probably need therapy, but I'm not ready to deal with that now, so whatever issue you have, right. you know, you get to own your own issue, Yeah, but it's not doing harm to anybody else. Yeah, so, well, and ultimately, I think that's the end of the, that's the story, right? Like, if there are multiple stories being told about whoever, African Americans, Apple, whatever it is, it's much better than if there's one narrative, um... Because everybody's got a different story. Right. And same thing, you know, once somebody says something about, I need a book about a little African-American girl who went to uh, integrated school, not the fact that everybody in the city, there's drug dealing and, right. you know, people shooting. Right. Everybody doesn't have that experience. Right. And you cannot look at a white person and right. expect them all to have the same experience. Right. You cannot look at a black person and right. expect them all to have the same experience. Right. Find out who that person is. Yeah. Well, and it's a, we'll end because I just... I hate Trump, so we're going to end with that. Like when I don't know if you watched the last town hall, but uh, there's an African American gentleman that asked him about the African American population. The first thing out of his mouth was inner city. It was like, well, you failed that question <laughs> because that's somebody that doesn't ha- hasn't experienced a lot of stories, right? Like because that can't be your first response to like, oh, I see. So, you know, I I'm still looking at places where I go and I'm the only black person sure. there. That should not yeah. still be. Right. In 2016. I tell my students all the time, I don't believe in diversity because you're born into diversity. There's so many things on this planet. If you find yourself surrounded by things that look like you, you've actually made that happen. Diversity happens without you doing anything. The only thing that doesn't is to have a bunch of people that look and sound like you. You have then made a decision to get rid of what there's nine billion people on the planet there's more insects and bugs and things and we can count so if you are in a place that you're the same you've made some bad life choices mm-hmm. um that's true i think it's you know you always think it's changing i don't know but i know that when trump said inner city i know that the whole internet exploded with like are you kidding me mm-hmm. like that's some dumb and so we're at least at a point now i think where we, we are talking about narratives where we're rejecting the idea of a singular narrative about whoever, women, 
African Americans, whoever it is. Um, and so things like this storytelling stuff really intrigue me because it seems to be in a technological world, the revival of this very personal and sharing. And you get to tell your own yeah. story. I'm tired of other people telling my story. Right. Let me tell my story as it relates to me. And you get to tell yours. Right. That's what people don't understand. Yeah. You know? But you have more in common than you, you know, than you think. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming. And that's a great way for us to end. conversation with Celestine. She was great, just like I said. Um, If you enjoyed this, by all means, tell your friends. Spread this around. Um, We have a lot of great interviews coming up. We have great stuff over the holiday into January. Looking forward to that. Remember, go to thegeekypress.com. You can find out about our reading series, Scripted. We have writing retreats coming up. We have a literary magazine that we're putting out. We have the Dear America book. Um, We would really, these are important things right now. And we hope that you think they're as important as we do. Until the next time, we'll see you around the internet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.